Good morning! Today is Sunday, the 5th day of March 2017. There once was an island of amusement parks. And in 1904, a new one began operation. It was set up to outclass all the others, but seven years later, it would meet with tragedy and be gone. Today is the story of Dreamland and its destruction on the 121st episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Get yourself a cup of joe, sit down, and I'll tell you a story. But before I get started, let me just say that, well, today's story is one suggested by a listener, and well, I don't know who that listener is, and I feel bad about that. Let me explain. I get suggestions for stories every now and again by a listener, and as soon as I get them, I write them down in a Word document. I usually just write down the idea, figuring that when I get around to doing it, I can just find the email to find out whose suggestion it was to give them the proper credit. So today's story was on the Word document, but when I went to find the email, it wasn't there. Did I delete it by accident? I don't know. I usually save all my emails, but personally, I think it's some sort of grand conspiracy to make me look ridiculous. I mean, it couldn't possibly be Jeff's fault, right? Anyway, whoever sent me the suggestion of telling the story of the Dreamland Amusement Park fire of 1911, let me know. I owe you a shout out. It was quite a long time ago. And speaking of suggestions that I get... I want to say, first, I really appreciate them, but secondly, I just want to let everybody know that if I've not used one of your suggestions, don't think for a minute that I didn't like it or don't plan to use it. Sometimes it just takes me a while to get to them. My usual way of working is I do a story on whatever I find interesting at that moment in time. It might be something that I heard in a conversation or seen on TV that sparks an idea, And I decide I need to learn more about that subject, so it turns into a Coffee with Jeff story. But those don't happen all the time. Some days, I just don't have an idea of what story to tell, and that's where your suggestions, my Word document list, comes in handy. That's the story of today's episode, actually. So please, keep sending your suggestions. I'll need them eventually. And thanks to Brian, a.k.a. Joe, for a couple of emails this week and another great suggestion for an episode that I'll probably use sometime in the future. So anyway, things have cooled off here in the Midwest, the weather being more like it should be. I mean, we've had a few light dustings of snow lately, but nothing that needs shoveling. And well, enough of the local weather reports. I've got a hot cup of coffee and a good story to tell, so sit back and get ready to hear the tale of the Dreamland Fire of 1912. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash That's C-S-I-C-O-N. 
A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Coney Island, the world's greatest fun frolic, with its beach miles long, all peppered with people. The place where merriment is king. Let's mingle with one million folks, folks who are just like all of us. 100,000 youngsters and oldsters, all swimming, playing, or resting, all getting their share of the sun and the fun, all refugees from the city heat, here where the beach meets the cool Atlantic, here in this great whirlpool of joy, here for a lark at Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. There's an area in the southwestern part of the borough of Brooklyn in New York City known as Coney Island. Coney Island is a very popular tourist attraction that is visited by hundreds of thousands of people every year for its beaches, amusement parks, and food. But Coney Island of the 21st century doesn't compare with the spectacle of what was there in the early 20th century. The years between 1880 and 1940 is considered the the theme park era of Coney Island with a size and scope that's hard to comprehend today. This is the place where hot dogs and roller coasters were invented. At its height, along with many independent amusement parks, Coney Island had three major parks all competing with each other. Luna Park, Steeplechase Park, and Dreamland. Dreamland is the subject of today's show. It was built in 1904 and was designed to be bigger and better, with an elegance far beyond the noise and chaos of Luna Park, and it would be gone seven years later. I mean, completely gone. Our story begins on September 1st, 1609. That was the day that English sea explorer and navigator Henry Hudson first spotted Coney Island, one day before he discovered the island of Manhattan. Of course, when we say discovered, we mean for the Europeans. I'm assuming the original Native American inhabitants of the region already knew of its existence. And no one knows how the island got its name. One theory is that it was named after the large rabbit population that inhabited the island. The Dutch word for rabbit is konin, which is spelled C-O-N-Y-N. And so perhaps the island was originally called Rabbit Island. And the name was probably angelicized to Coney Island after the English took it over in 1664. And so for the next 200 years, the island remained as it was, wild and natural, until 1847 when a pier was constructed on its western end and a ferry line from the mainland was created. People began visiting the island and small concession stands began popping up selling clams and beer. Eventually, games of chance, such as three-card Monty, began showing up. By 1870, it had become a very popular vacation site for the middle class. By then, there was a resort on the island called Brighton Beach. By 1900, there were two more resorts competing for business, Manhattan Beach and West Brighton. In the early days, Coney Island was known as a place of debauchery and sin, with gambling, booze, and prostitution, but it was eventually cleaned up and the place became family-friendly. This began the amusement park era, with Steeplechase Park being the first to open. It all began in 1893 when George C. Tillou, whose family ran a Coney Island restaurant, saw a large Ferris wheel at the World's Fair in Chicago. 
He wanted to buy it, but after that was refused, he built his own on Coney Island. Soon he began adding other rides and attractions, including his main attraction, a mechanical horse race track in which people rode mechanical horses around a track. He named this park Steeplechase Park to go along with the horse race theme. Let me tell you, I've seen films of this ride, and I can say that it didn't look very safe, but that was the norm for attractions in the early days of Coney Island. Now, when one exited from this ride, they found that the fun wasn't over. They were greeted by two clowns, an average-sized man and a little person. The larger man had a kettle prod and would hit and jab the men as they would walk by, and as the women walked by, a puff of air would come up from the ground, blowing their skirts up to show their undergarments. All the while, the little person would run around and taunt the guests. It was a huge hit. Many of the guests were humiliated by the experience, but that was quickly forgotten as they sat back and enjoyed seeing others go through the same torture. The next park began when two men, Frederick Tomlinson and Elmer Skip Dundee, hooked up in 1901 with an attraction at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York called A Trip to the Moon. Tillou got the men to bring their attraction to Steeplechase Park, but after a year, the two men left Tillou's Park and began a park of their own right across the street. And since their first attraction was A Trip to the Moon, they named it Luna Park. They bought out Paul Boynton's Sea Lion Park, which had been the first amusement park in Coney Island. And with 22 acres of land and $700,000, which was all the money they had, they set out to build the largest, greatest amusement park in the world. And at the center of this park was a 200-foot-tall electric tower, which was decorated with 20,000 incandescent lamps. In fact, the whole park decorated in an oriental theme, was lit by over a half million electric lights. It opened on May 16, 1903 to 60,000 visitors and was a huge success. Both Thompson and Dundee quickly made their money back. The success of Luna Park inspired a former state senator and successful Brooklyn real estate developer, William H. Reynolds, who was a man known for some questionable deals, to start a park of his own. He decided to create a park to compete with Luna and purchased 15 acres of land to build on. He called it Dreamland with the idea that his park would be more refined and elegant in its design and architecture than that of Luna Park, with everything being bigger and more expansive. Construction began in December with 2,000 carpenters, ironworkers, and masons who worked all winter and spring to finish the park in time for a May 15, 1904 opening. All the buildings were constructed of artificial stone as they were permanent structures. 1,700 tons of asbestos was used in fireproofing, and 600,000 gallons of water were stored in the central tower for the event of a fire. Workers laid 90 miles of sewer, water, gas, and electrical conduit. The park was a lot more expensive to build than that of Luna, about $2,500,000 plus the cost of the land. It was built with an elegant architecture. Its buildings were pristine white rather than the multicolored look of Luna. And along with the rides and thrills, the park would also have educational exhibitions. When completed, Dreamland was everything William H. Reynolds and his investors hoped. 
Much of it was taking things from Luna and changing it slightly or improving it in size and scope. Where Luna had a 200-foot-tall electric tower, Dreamland had a 375-foot beacon tower, pure white with 100,000 lights. Instead of one shoot-the-shoots, it had two. In its Firemen Fighting Fire show, there were four times as many firefighters, and the building was six stories high rather than two. Its dance floor could accommodate 4,000 couples. Dreamland itself was large enough that 100,000 people could see everything and move around without congestion. A railway ran through a Swiss alpine landscape, and one could take a gondola ride through imitation Venetian canals. One of its oddest exhibitions was the Lilliputian Village, or Midget Village, a miniature town populated by 300 little people in which everything from vehicles to houses to the furniture was built to scale. And then there was the Infant Incubator display in which real, premature babies were put on show for the public. Now this wasn't as weird as it may seem. It was created by Dr. Martin Coney, who realized that premature babies were not ready to deal with the surroundings of the outside world and needed to be kept in incubators until they were ready. But since these newfangled things called incubators were not approved for hospital use, he made a deal with Dreamland to help parents of premature babies while charging 25 cents a person to come in and view these little miracles. The doctor never charged parents for the care he provided, which also included rotating shifts of doctors and nurses looking after the little babies. According to historian Jeffrey Baker, Cooney offered a standard of technological care not matched in any hospital of the time. And people were brought in from all around the world to be put on display, and this included about a dozen Somalian warriors from Africa, an entire village of Eskimo people, and 51 tribesmen from the Philippines. There was the destruction of Pompeii, in which spectators saw the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and its destruction of the town of Pompeii, with all the inhabitants being engulfed with a downpour of lava and ashes. In Over and Under the Sea, the public experienced a simulated submarine ride, which went under the Atlantic, where they viewed action through portholes, like seeing a giant squid, sharks, and, and other strange creatures of the deep. Customers could ride the Thompson Scenic Railway, see Wormwood's Dog and Monkey Show, and visit the End of the World, which depicted the Bible's Book of Revelations, and of course ended up in Hell. It was called Hellgate, in which a whirlpool realistically appeared to slowly suck a boat below the water's surface. Passengers would then see inside the earth, and the ride would finish with a giant explosion. There's a lot more to this park than you can read about it online. It was a pretty amazing place, but with all its spectacle and excitement, it always struggled to compete with Luna. From Dreamland's opening in 1904 to 1911, with many changes and improvements, it was still in trouble financially. On April 11, 1911, William H. Reynolds testified at a tax board meeting, and he said, Since Dreamland was incorporated... Not one dollar has been paid to the investors, and not one dollar of the $150,000 has been paid to the Title Guarantee and Trust Company. The Williamsburg Savings Bank has $300,000 first mortgage on Dreamland, and in seven years we've never paid one dollar of interest. No man has received one cent in return, 
and it's only been a losing venture from the start. And the whole seven years we've run it, we've not made one dollar out of it. We helped to increase the value of everything down there at Dreamland, but never got a value of a dollar. Reynolds was already looking for a way to profit from the sale of Dreamland by declaring bankruptcy and selling off all the land. Between the years 1910 and 1911, the dealings of Reynolds and the shareholders gets very complicated, and it's too much for me to go into here. What Reynolds finally did was give complete control of the park to Samuel Double Gumspurts, who would later go on to be the director of Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus. By this time, it really didn't matter. Reynolds had given up on the park and was just looking for a way to get out of it while making a profit. Gumpertz was attempting to revive the park by having all its elegant white buildings repainted in bright colors and by putting $60,000 into renovating the park. There was a mad rush to get this ready by the spring opening, and then around 1.30 a.m. on May 27, 1911, while workers were attempting to fix a leak in the roof of Hellgate, something went wrong with the electrical system and the lights the workers were using began to pop and explode. In the dark, one of the workers kicked over a bucket of tar and it caught fire. It wasn't long before the whole building was set ablaze. Now here's the thing. Dreamland was designed with a state-of-the-art firefighting system, and it was tested regularly, but for some reason on this morning, when they hooked up their hoses to the newly installed high-pressure firefighting system, the pressure began to fail rapidly and the streams of water fell short. Some say the owners at other parks began to tap into Coney Island's high-pressure system in an effort to protect their own parks. Of course, they later denied this, but it would explain the loss of pressure. The fire alarms began to sound, and firefighters began to arrive within minutes from a fire station located literally less than a block away. 300 employees were in the park that night, and they began quickly trying to save as much as they could. But the fire spread quickly, and within 15 minutes, much of the west side of Dreamland was on fire, including an electrical building and the infant incubator exhibition. Fortunately, all the infants were saved before the fire got to them. But the winds were blowing inland, and sparks began to hit adjacent buildings, and they quickly caught fire. Dreamland's huge tower began burning like a candle, and eventually came crashing down with a thunderous roar. Animal trainer Colonel Joseph Ferrari, his lion tamer Captain Jack Bonavita, and the police rushed in and tried to save dozens of animals trapped in cages. Now one can only imagine the chaotic panic as they attempted to get wild animals into transportation cages in the dark, with heat and flames all around, and the animals hysterical and confused. At one point, a cage was opened by someone who had not realized that the animals had been let off their chains, and they began to run wild. Black Prince, the most popular lion at Dreamland, bent bars of his portable cage and limped away, hurting on fire. He was eventually shot by police to put him out of his agony. Over 60 animals died, either by the fire or by police bullets. The workers who were still in the park had to be evacuated by sea via police rescue boats. The flames were seen from some 15 miles away, and it was so intense that the sound was described as sounding like a volcano erupting. And as the fire began to get out of control, the mission of the firemen quickly changed. From one of saving what was left of the park 
to just containing the fire to Dreamland and saving the buildings adjacent to the park. In other words, Dreamland was left to burn. When the sun broke the next morning, what had once been a theme park was now a smoldering ruins. Nothing was left. Booths, restaurants, hotels, moving picture theaters, and resorts of various types were all gone. In all, around 200 buildings were burnt and around 300 people were now out of work, some homeless and penniless. That day, around 350,000 people came to visit Coney Island to view the remains like it was some sort of sideshow. Many of the concessionaires' livelihoods were gone after the fire. People like Charles Carmel, a famous Coney Island-based carousel figure carver, he decided to invest his life savings into owning and operating a carousel for the first time, one in which he had just installed a dreamland. Of course, the other two parks saw an increase in business that year. It was after the fire that Dreamland's financial woes came to light. The park was somewhere around $2.2 million in debt, including six mortgages totaling $1.45 million. Basically, the park was either operating at break-even or below in all its seven years it was in operation. But it wasn't just Dreamland. Luna Park was in a similar situation. The seven-year battle between the two parks had taken its toll on them as well. Frederick Thompson declared personal bankruptcy and lost his stake in Luna Park in early 1912. Strangely, George C. Tillow's Steeplechase Park had been fine with being the number three park in Coney Island, and because they never got involved in the amusement park wars that had been going on between Luna and Dreamland, they were the only park to survive intact. Reynolds bought up most of the outstanding bonds at a very low price and, ten years later, sold the property to New York City. It was valued at $1.5 million and somehow he got $1.8 million for it. Some have pointed out that the destruction of Dreamland couldn't have worked out better for Reynolds. And the fact that it happened in the middle of the night when there was the least chance of people getting hurt, well, it's hard not to wonder if the fire was truly an accident. The big show is almost ready. Pull back the curtain. And now they're coming. A few by car, but mostly by subway. From Brooklyn and the Bronx, from Manhattan, from Kansas City, from Paris. All coming to Stillwell Avenue, the station for Coney Island. And now they're here. Welcome to Coney Island, playground of the world. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. You might be wondering whatever happened to William H. Reynolds. I was wondering. The thing is, on the wiki page for Dreamland, it has a link to William H. Reynolds, but that link takes you to a different William H. Reynolds. At least it seemed like it to me. So I looked around and found a site called I Love Long Beach, New York, and it had a short biography of Reynolds, and it talks about him in such glowing terms that I sort of doubted its accuracy. It says, and I quote, With Coney Island's dreamland a huge success, William Reynolds' gaze turned farther out in Long Island. Great success, really. 
Anyway, it goes on to say how much of a real estate genius he was and how the Chrysler building was all his idea and whatever. He died on October 20th, 1931 at the age of 63 from heart disease. I'm assuming a very rich man. He left behind a wife, two daughters, and a grandchild. And it also says he was very generous when it came to charities. As far as the other two parks... Luna Park would have different owners, different management, file for bankruptcy many times before a pair of fires in 1944 destroyed much of it. The original Luna Park now houses a five-building apartment complex and is still called Luna Park to this day. Over the years, other amusement parks have also called themselves Luna. Steeplechase Park survived, in one way or another, for a long time with the original family retaining ownership. It closed for good on September 20th, 1964. The property was sold to real estate developer Fred Trump, who is the father of the current president of the United States, Donald Trump. People hoped that Trump would let the park stay open until he figured out just what to do with it, but he kept it closed for two years before having it bulldozed in 1966. And now the ending credits. I've got some bad news. Psycon is closing down and all our podcasts are coming to an end. That's what I would be saying if we didn't have listeners like you supporting our shows. No, we are not shutting down. But you can be one of our supporters by going to our Patreon page. You can find information at Psycon's website. That is www.csicon.fm. And of course, a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. While at Psycon's website, you'll find that Psycon is the place where you can find a ton of amazing shows. And while you're there, you might say, whatever happened to that Half Pints and Whole Notes show? It isn't there anymore. No, don't worry. It's still there and it's just as entertaining as ever. It's just called Pint Notes now. And if you listen to the latest episode... Besides hearing Beckett and Josh drink beer and talk about great music, you'll also hear Beckett tell Josh just what he needs to make his intros a little better. Seriously, though, if you want to hear all about the latest and greatest music, listen to Pint Notes. Give this show and all the others at Psycon a listen. They can be found at psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can complain or just say hi, whatever. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed, even if I don't use them right away. If you want to support the show, but you don't have the coin to help financially, and that's something I understand, just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a couple of stars or something. That really helps increase the show's popularity. It only takes a minute. And remember, links to all the sources I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. Man, it's going to be 33 pretty soon. Anyway, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks to everybody. I'll be back in two weeks. 
Coffee with Jeff. 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 